Hi, welcome to the Encouraging Word, um, and we are continuing our series on the early church fathers. My name is Stephen Young, youth director here, and Paul Bennett is the assistant pastor. Um, and we've been doing this podcast now for how long? Is Goodness. it been a year and a half? It's been yeah, I would two, say a year and a half. Not two years yet, right? Couldn't be because we, we started post pandemic. Right. So yeah. Wow, man, it's been quite a long time. It's uh, quite a ride. Right, I've changed a whole lot. Paul has aged well through this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, very gracefully. (laughs) You're starting to show your age myself too. I have a lot of gray hairs in my beard now. That's forty years from now. We'll be sitting in our rockers. Right. Yeah. That's because of my kids, though, not because of the podcast. (laughs) Of course. Anyways, we are uh, excited about um, this series, and I've learned a lot, and I know. Paul's learned a lot. He's he's told me about it. So um, we're gonna first thing we're gonna do our first segment. We're gonna do the fit segment here, and actually gonna have Paul start with his fit segment. I, I don't even know what his is, so I'm pretty excited. I I thought I'd keep it a surprise until the last. Actually, it's nothing really that uh, exhilarating. It's gonna be fun and interesting and thought provoking, though. So. Thank you for yeah. taking care of uh, explaining <laughs> what the fit segment is. Funny, interesting, thought-provoking, and this I, I think is more interesting to me. Uh, it certainly doesn't fall into the funny category, probably not thought-provoking, but I just thought I'd take a moment to reflect on um, on alarm clocks. <laughs> didn't see that coming. No, I didn't. No, I, you know, I, I was looking back at my last week or so and couldn't find anything all that interesting, <laughs> but but this has been a theme in, in, my, in my house, well, it has been for years, is you know how each person uh has a different routine for waking up in the morning and you know each of my kids have uh shown different tendencies uh some just literally never (laughs) never wake up they just keep (laughs) sleeping no matter what you do um and and sometimes uh there'll be one that that has uh this series of of sleep uh, button things you know where you, you set the alarm maybe even 10 minutes early so you can hit huh. the sleep button once or twice along the way the and then snooze button. you pop up snoo- snooze button yeah. yeah sleep button. oh sleep button that's the thing that makes your tv turn off right after you fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we use that in our house too sometimes. Yeah. um yeah the snooze button is is a a, a friend um, and uh, my two kids that are still at home, they've, they've made some good progress um, over the years. And, and, yeah, one of them is using the snooze button but effectively getting up. The other has uh, been very good in the past but is struggling more so recently. And so I recently uh, made a, a purchase of a Sonic Boom alarm clock. Wow. And this is, I think, the third one our family has, has purchased. We're, wow. We should buy stock in Sonic Boom. But uh, this alarm clock uh, is loud enough to wake the entire county. Um, and you huh. can put this uh, this little wired uh, thingamajig under your... your um, Pillow? I, yeah, under your pillow, wow. I, I think is what they suggest. And it vibrates like violently when, when your alarm goes off <laughs> so that you're jolted awake. And you have to dash across the room to shut it off. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna use the sonic boom to try and help uh, my one child get does back into one, healthy habits. Does your one child know there's gonna be a sonic boom alarm clock? And are you gonna install it late at night when they're sleeping? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you should totally do that. Like that? What are you doing under my pillow? <laughs> yeah. um, no, just install the alarm clock and then kind of put whatever that 
whatever that uh why is it a wire or something yeah it's a wire it's, it's a wire. over their face or something <laughs> like <that>. face. <laughs> slip it into their ear right. <laughs> up their sleeve or there you yeah go. that that would probably be oh um, not get a good reaction right. no we haven't discussed it but um but uh, they know that there's a loud alarm clock coming so they at least know something oh, wow. yeah they don't yeah. Just, do they know how loud um, well, they they will. They'll understand it because their siblings have um, uh, both utilized this in the past. So, uh, so why can't you use the ones that you already use? Did the, did the other siblings break theirs? No, they're Fair still man? they're still in use. Oh. They're still in use. So <laughs> still in use. Our, our poor neighbors. Oh um, I'm really hoping. I, I think we have to give second thought to ever sleeping with the windows open. Right. I guess is the main thing. Oh but. wow. Uh, but yeah, that, I thought reflecting on that would be interesting. I know when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I was um, pretty successful in a lot of things school related. But getting up in the morning, and it was a, it's a struggle. There was a stretch where uh, I just couldn't figure out, I couldn't solve the problem about how to actually get up and stay up and not turn the alarm off and go right back to sleep. Right. Uh, it took me a long time to conquer that that yeah. that issue, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, everybody's got their own things. Right. So what do you got for us? Uh, All right, that. yeah, my next one, or my next one. My <laughs> One's fit, plenty. Right? <laughs> my fit um, is actually interesting. Um, well, Paul's was interesting, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean it I, that way. I was way. really I trying hard with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so your next more interesting right. fit is? We both did interesting ones, equally interesting ones. Oh, thank you. Um, Mine is about the James Webb Telescope, which, if you follow anything about the news, you may have heard and may have crept into your news cycle. Um, I'm really excited about it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite a space geek, but I do like space stuff. I do like um, learning about stars, galaxies, time, time travel. Um, Star Wars is better than Star Trek. We'll just throw that out oh, there. Jeez. Um, <laughs> Paul's a Star Trek We don't Trek have guy. time to cover that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I, yeah, I do enjoy space. As a matter of fact, actually, last night I was out taking pictures of the full moon, and uh, that was pretty, pretty cool. So, um, James Webb Telescope is—it's uh, um, kind of like a replacement for the Hubble Telescope, um, which I don't know what year that went up. Was it early '90s? I think that went up early mid '90s. Um, so, James Webb Telescope is kind of a replacement of that, but it's it's a lot bigger of course with any technology it's bigger it's faster it's better mm. uh, it's uh it's supposed to launch december 18th and what's a couple of things are really interesting it's um, really large it's about the size of um, a tennis court i guess they said um, so it's pretty big and um, it has um, this huge mirror it has like let's see i have the stats up but i'm probably gonna get lost it has like 18 gold covered mirrors or something on it and mirrors are really important to get the light and to reflect it and and to um see deep into space but what's also really interesting is that it's able to see light that hubble couldn't see and it's able to see light that our own eyes can't see so it's going to see i think it's infrared light is the light that we okay. can see yep um so it's gonna um really go deep and what they're hoping to do is kind of see right into they say the beginning of the universe, beginning of time, and wow, right, it's gonna be yeah, it's gonna be because any because I think anyone knows that this the light you f see from a star is actually old because the light has to travel, so you're actually mm. looking back in time essentially when you see the light of a star. 
So the um, further you look, the further back in time you can exactly, see. Exactly. Wow. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. It's it's exciting um, to see what they're gonna see. They'll probably just see uh, God looking at them or something. They'll be like, hey. <laughs> You're like, but that's you know yeah, a million years old. Right. So if that's still happening, who right. knows? Yeah. yeah. Um. Anyways, but yeah, it's going to be really, it's going to, I, I find it really exciting, um, exciting to see what they're going to be able to do with the technology and what they're going to discover. Um, so, um, and also one thing that's um, also really interesting about it is that when they launch it, they're actually, actually launching it a million miles away from Earth. It's actually going to be further away than the moon and it's going to orbit the Earth almost like it's like, almost like a, almost like a mini moon kind of. So yeah. it's it's going to orbit the Earth from a million miles away. So it's that's really amazing. So far the farthest man-made orbiting telescope ever. So yeah, it's exciting. So I really look forward to that. Hopefully, wow. everything works out. Are you going to the launch? Oh yeah, it's, no, it's going to be it's <laughs> launching in South America somewhere. Oh. Uh, I yeah, just figured, sure it's you know, that. Florida or Houston or no, shows actually my not. naivety. Right. Yeah, I can't remember where it's launching from. Okay. We'll have to give an update later. We could do a church field trip. Right. <laughs> if go. they're looking for God or the origins right. of the universe, Maybe that's a we'll good do excuse. A, we should just do a podcast on space is what we should do. We should. The wonders we of should. space. That would be great. Yeah, it would be short. I wouldn't know much. <laughs> <laughs> we would have to do a little bit of research. <laughs> a little bit. But it will be, be fun. Um, wow. So that's mine. Yeah, I like it. That's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Yours was fascinating, too, just to throw that Equally. Out. Equally. Yes. Fa- <laughs> the sonic boom alarm clock is pretty great. And and equally fascinating to our alarm clocks and telescopes are, are the uh, early church oh, uh, yes. fathers, influencers mm-hmm. of our faith. And so we, we delved back into, uh, as Stephen was saying, this uh, mostly, I think, 4th century uh, leaders and, and into the 5th century a bit. Um, these this category of uh, early church leaders is are, is called the uh, post Nicene uh, fathers. They call them post Nicene fathers because they all happen to be uh, males, and uh, they come after the the Council of Nicaea, which occurred in AD three twenty five. Uh, the Council of Nicaea was called by uh, Constantine, the current emperor of of Rome at the time. Um, and I, I know little about Constantine, but, but what I do know is intriguing um, and love to dive more into him. Um, but the, the first Roman emperor that really advocated for the Christian faith, converted to Christianity, made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. And whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, I, I think was, is still up for debate. But um, anyhow, he called this Council of Nicaea in AD 325 to uh, bring church leaders, church bishops from all across the empire uh, to establish a consensus together on some Christian beliefs and practices. Uh, that happened uh, 325. There were about 300 bishops uh, at the time that showed up, participated in that. And then these uh, folks that we're going to talk about are folks that uh, lived uh, shortly thereafter uh, in the period that followed. So uh, we'll start with, uh, without further ado, Ambrose. Ambrose. Uh, so Ambrose was born in 339 uh, A.D. He lived for uh, about 58 years, so died in 397, uh, solely in the, the 4th century. And uh, regarding Ambrose's personal life, he 
uh, was essentially born into royalty. His father was the viceroy of Gaul. I had to, I had to look those uh, some of those things up. In fact, I had to look a lot of things up in in my research for this week. But uh, viceroy means that you, you're essentially representing um, a, a leader, or a, in this case, an emperor that uh, resides elsewhere. You're representing them, their leadership in a region. Gaul is uh, modern day France, just known as as Gaul at the time. So uh, Ambrose is born into this royal family, where his father is the viceroy. His father dies when he's young, so he and his mother actually relocated to Rome, uh, where he was raised in a palace, uh, still in, in uh, royalty, uh, by his widowed mother, his older sister. And in that particular palace, and, and during his childhood, his, his sister became a nun. Uh, the palace was frequented by clergy, um, so he was surrounded by and, and exposed to a great deal of, of church um, influence and, and practice and tradition uh, throughout his childhood. Um, and as he grew and, and started to claim like his, his family's uh, um, authority and, and place in society, he became a governor of a nearby region when he was about 30. And a few years later, he was chosen as uh, bishop, once again, essentially the church pastor or leader, uh, bishop of, of the nearby church of uh, Milan. So he, he went from being an unbaptized uh, layperson, so just a, a church attendee, to a bishop um, of this, uh, this incredible city uh, in Italy in eight days. <laughs> so it's quite a, quite a transition. Right. Um, so when he, he settled into the city of uh, Milan, he um, was in a, a place that was um, uh, frequented. There was actually a royal court that uh, frequently met and tried cases in the city. So Ambrose had this unique opportunity as bishop of the church to also kind of get involved in, in the, uh, the, the life of um, politics nearby and, and the legal system. And he began to try to intervene and use his influence to uh, affect uh, court and, and political decisions that were handed down through this court system. Um, and uh, he would try and sway public opinion for or against uh, the decisions made by the court uh, to accomplish his own agendas and, and uh, his plans for the church. So his, his power grew, his influence with the people grew. He went as far as to, to uh, have the guts to rebuke the Roman emperor himself. Um, and I think Stephen has some, some more information on the context of that uh, that oddly I did not encounter. Um, but uh, the Roman emperor's name was Theodosius. And uh, Theodosius, um, due to the, the pressure that Ambrose put on him, actually had to give public penance for uh, his, some of his actions, some, some awful things that he did, uh, which is kind of unprecedented that the church would have the power to tell the emperor what to do and hold him accountable. Um, but he also gained and maintained respect with the people through his uh, diplomacy. He uh, accomplished a lot uh, diplomatically, uh, including healthy relations with uh, the Emperor Maximus, uh, who usurped the throne shortly thereafter. Uh, he was called upon to give funeral orations for, for two of the emperors during his lifetime. Um, so a lot of both in the, the public, uh, political, and, uh, and religious uh, spheres he had a lot of influence. Uh, but overall, he successfully pushed forward the, the concept of the Roman emperor essentially being a Christian emperor, representative of the Christian church, serving as a, a dutiful 
uh, son of the church. So these are new dynamics. Um, essentially, the Roman emperor was uh, understood as serving under orders from Christ. So the Ro Roman emperor in that case was subject to the authority of the leader of the church or the highest representative of Christ, which was the, the, um, the bishop or eventually the pope. And uh, so this represented a huge shift in power dynamics where the church began to speak uh, over and above the state uh, as far as making decisions and, and um, what uh, things would look like. So Ambrose was uh, powerful in that regard, diplomatic relations, swaying public opinion, uh, but at the same time was keeping up to date with uh, lots of the latest Greek uh, learnings and, and talks, uh, both in Christian realms and pagan realms. Uh, he gave powerful sermons. He was uh, known as a very eloquent uh, speaker um, and uh, spoke, of course, in Latin. His efforts um, reinforced a growing arist aristocratic Christianity, um, all encouraged by his letters, his uh, nominations that he made through the, the power position that he held and, and the, the uh, high um, people that he visited, his teachings. Um, he just had such a huge impact over uh, just the the uh, society he lived in and, and the shift in um, the the state beginning to uh, align itself with the church and with the uh, the rules and traditions of Christianity. Um, in his writings, he, he would replace Roman heroes that were once venerated with uh, heroes directly from the Bible and old some of these Old Testament characters. So he just he really kind of began to overlap church and, and state and pull uh, the state into more of a, a participation in uh, the activities of the church. Uh, amongst other things, he also composed uh, some hymns. He helped uh, folks uh, who were candidates for baptism uh, to move towards baptism. He denounced the uh, social abuses of his time. He secured pardons for men who had been condemned for their crimes. He advocated for an ascetic uh, lifestyle, this very uh, disciplined and uh, selfless and, and giving up of material things uh, type of lifestyle. Um, I've read this so much so that when he spoke, uh, a lot of parents who had daughters who were of, of marrying age would uh, be afraid to bring their daughters to listen to Ambrose speak because he, they thought that he would convince their daughters to, to choose a life of abstinence and virginity and to refuse to get married. And then the parents would be out of luck. You know, they wouldn't get grandkids or the, you know, the daughter wouldn't be able to make their way up in, her, her way up in society. Um, his most noteworthy convert uh, was Augustine of Hippo. We're going to talk about more detail in a bit. Um, but uh, let's see, he, he, uh, he came to Milan uh, as bishop, as a, a skeptical professor of rhetoric, but he left a, a baptized Christian. So he had a major shift in his life while he was there. And uh, his theology uh, that he learned and, and then shared with the people through his writings and especially his sermons would eventually transform all of Christian theology. So his, his reputation, uh, even after his death, was was untarnished, which is somewhat rare in those days. Everybody seemed to have done something wrong to, to uh, anger the, the crowds, the masses. Uh, but not Ambrose. His reputation remained untarnished. Um, he didn't see himself as an ambassador for this, uh, but he effectively inspired this, like I said, this new power dynamic in which the church dominated over the state. It's likely he was, in, in the time period he, he lived in, he was uh, saw himself as just protecting the church from being pushed around by the state, um, but he really shifted the dynamics uh, of those two entities. 
Um, and uh, by the time he, he died, he had um, effectively helped the, the uh, church reach a point where it was imposing its will on the Roman emperor, um, which was huge. So uh, he, he saw himself as just a simple bishop, but what he accomplished was anything but simple and uh, left a huge imprint on uh, the world he lived in. So that's Ambrose in, in a nutshell, maybe a large nutshell, but a nutshell nonetheless. Uh, Stephen, any... You think yeah. I, <laughs> I think all that was was right on. Um, I would also mention too that he um, was really fought against Aaron Arianism, um, which was a pagan philosophy that was going around during his time. So he was a real big um, proponent of that and um, was trying to keep that from um, getting into the church. Um, and also too, I, I know Paul mentioned this um, in passing, but. Um, Ambrose is credited with introducing the concept of congregational singing, which at the time was somewhat controversial. Um, he was accused of bewitching uh, Milan um, by introducing, introducing Eastern melodies into the hymns he wrote. Um, because of his influence, hymn singing became an important part in Western liturgy. Um, but I just find it interesting that through every culture there's always like this musical shift within the church and everyone <laughs> is kind of this being a little upset um but then it be kind of come becomes a norm um but even a lot of the great hymns that that we like to sing in the church started off um something that started off not in the church um and then finally i want to say um leave with this quote that he's a quote that he is credited for which i found really interesting he said, um, Ambrose said, when we speak of wisdom, we're speaking about Christ. When we speak about virtue, we are speaking about Christ. When we speak about justice, we are speaking about Christ. When we are speaking about truth and life and redemption, we are speaking about Christ. Um, and I just find that interesting, his high Christology um, about Christ and the importance of Christ and, and, and all our life that in Christ we find wisdom and justice and virtue and life and truth and redemption um, in Christ. So um, really, really great quote for him. All right, next guy on our list is John, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, John Christodom? Christodom? Chris, Chris, oh, there's just an, an extra O in there. Chrysostom? Chrysostom. Um, I don't know why. I mean, if I was him, I would have changed my name. Like, <laughs> why would you want all right. those vowels in there right. and nobody can pronounce it? Exactly. But. John Christoms. Um Anyways, I'm probably just going to say John, but jo Christoms, it meant golden mouth because um, oh. he was really known for his preaching. So he was a great preacher. So Maybe that's why I kept his name. <laughs> if my <laughs> right. name was Golden Mouth, right. I might not want right. to change it either. That's maybe, true. maybe one day, Paul, you will be anointed with that name. John Paul Christum. I would change it. I would be like Golden Head or like <laughs> golden, golden Muscles. or <laughs> You don't even work out. Oh, yeah, that's true. We, we need to do that for our fit segment of the, that will we'll hit the gym. What do again. our names mean? Oh, <laughs> hit the gym? Yeah. No, that's all right. Okay. Uh, anyways, um, John, and you know his last name by now. John C. Uh, yeah, John C., but... If anyone knows who John Cena is, I'm not talking about John Cena. Anyways, <laughs> John, um, um, where should I start? So John, his mother, after his mother's death, um, it really um, affected him and um, his life. And um, he ended up 
uh, practicing severe, severely autistic. That was it. As acidic. Acidic. There you go. No, acidic. Ascetic. It's an A S C E T. Asceticism. Asceticism. Yeah. I think it's the C's. There's just C's in everything. No, this is this is not a good day for pronunciation. Um, during this time, he spent two years living in a cave in the mountains near Antioch, where he um, dedicated himself to memorize the entire Bible. Finally, ill health forced him to abandon the hermit lifestyle. And then John was ordained in 386. Um, he preached some of his best sermons in Antioch until 390, uh, 398, when, um, much against his will, he was quote-unquote kidnapped forced to preach in Constantinople um, he was made the patriarch um, or archbishop of Constantinople by a government official again as Paul was talking about how the church and government were um, really beginning to blend together um, rather than fighting the kidnapping and appointment John submitted to it and seeing it as the providence of God um, John a little bit of his physical <laughs> description which I find interesting um, in the research I did he said the research said he was his large bald head and deeply <laughs> set <laughs> deeply set eyes um sulken cheeks reminded people of elijah the prophet elisha uh, actually elisha the prophet so how they knew what he looked like i, know, I guess they knew <laughs> what he looked like um through his sermons which could last anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours which imagine going to church and you don't know if the sermon's going to be 30 minutes or two hours <laughs> Um, they were all well attended, and he is—he um, was really known for his sermons and his preaching. Um, again, that's why his last name meant Golden Mouth. Um, but he's also was um, discouraged, um, uh, fought some discouragement and uh, depression. He said, "Quote: My work is like that of a man who is trying to clean a piece of ground into which a muddy stream is constantly flowing." So he's just sometimes he would get disheartened with his his preaching and wouldn't always see um, the change that he desired. Um, I thought another quote that was really interesting um, about he's he's quoted about talking about horse racing, huh. and uh, it's really it's really a good quote. Um, so he's quoted saying. My sermons are applauded merely from custom. When everyone runs off to the horse racing again and gives more applause to the jockeys, showing indeed unrestrained passion for them, they put their heads together with great attention and say with mutual rivalry, the horses do not run well, or this one stumbled, and one holds to this jockey or another. Um, or another. No one thinks any more of my sermons, nor of the holy and awesome mysteries that are accomplished here. So he was upset that people weren't um, as excited about his sermons as they were about the horse racing. So I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel your pain, John. I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes uh, you know people are excited about to watch the uh, NFL games. You know they're sometimes can be more exciting than a sermon but you know. well yeah what are people talking about sunday evenings <laughs> right, are they right. talking about our sermons yes, or are they sir, talking right. about how the browns game went <laughs> right yeah, you know the you know the answer so uh, again it just kind of goes to the whole thought that there's nothing new under the sun you know i mean mm. even back then people were into the horse racing and not not the sermons so <laughs> found that really fascinating um among john's favorite themes 
um, uh, among his favorite things were caring for the poor and the needy, a duty that he found lacking among the wealthy class. So when John was preaching in Antioch, um, he was kind of, he was really preaching um, the whole scripture, the totality of scripture, and, and following the Lord, and, and prayer, and needy. But then when he moved to Constantinople, he continued his preaching style. He continued to preach um, care for the poor and the needy, even though when he was in Constantinople, he was preaching to a much more wealthy, royal um, people, uh, people that wasn't like an Antioch. It's almost like preaching from a small country town to preaching in kind of like New York City, big city um, among the wealthy. So um, he frequently um, spoke to the rich to lay aside their materialistic habits and rebuke them for, for their lack of care about their possessions, um, not lack of care about um, their fellow creatures and more care for their possessions. Um, he won a spit one um, sermon. He really um, spoke. <laughs> this is another quote that I find really interesting. That from one of his sermons, um, he was trying to really um, speak to um, the rich and getting them to to care for the poor and the needy. And he, this is pretty funny. He he's quoted saying, "Do you pay such honor to your excrements, in order with your poop?" As to as to receive them into a silver ch- um, chamber pot when another man made in the image of God is perishing in the cold. So in other words, <laughs> they're pooping into silver chamber pots and paying for that and not using that money to go towards someone in mm-hmm. the cold. So um, it's like sitting on a golden toilet, I assume. Is that kind of... Paul, you don't have golden toilets, do you? No, no. I... <laughs> You wouldn't waste money on such things. Unless the gold is beneath the porcelain somewhere. Right. I've missed it all along. But no, I mean, I usually don't look down. To, I don't know why it matters what it looks like, but I exactly. could say that about a lot of things. Back, back then, they wanted to be a silver silver pot, silver chamber pot. Yep. Um, wouldn't sit on anything less than that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, he was essentially is calling out the rich for their excessive wealth yeah. and not using it for for the poor um and a matter of fact his preaching got him into trouble when he called out the empress um and he was banished in 404 on charges of treason and then he died in exile at four, 407 um year 407 and his remains were eventually brought back to constantinople in 438 and he's buried um in the church of the apostles so um, but anyways, he had a major effect um, in the church at large in his sermons um, and also just his care for the poor and the needy. Um, so he was really well known for that. Um, and one last quote, this is, this is a good one. Preaching, he said, preaching improves me. When I begin to speak, weariness disappears. When I begin to teach, fatigue to dis- disappear. So in his preaching, he really felt the gifting and the calling of God. So, Paul, do you have any well, I was just going to say, maybe I'm off base here, but uh, it just struck me, he reminds me of another John. Uh, he reminds me of John the Baptist a little bit. Okay, yeah. I don't know if you, you're picking up what I'm laying down yeah. here, but I'm picturing, well, John the Baptist wasn't exactly known for his physical right. appearance. Um, he was he was all about calling the people to repent, so he was he was you know pretty much an in-your-face uh, speaker he, he preached and he gained lots of converts 
Um, and then also, was it John the Baptist had a dispute with the wasn't it the the wife? He was he was calling out the right. um, the king and and yeah. his relations with his right. uh, sister in law or something right. like that. And you know, so that's what got John right. the Baptist in trouble. And here's John Chrysostom, you know, four hundred years later, who's got Call the wife the of the emperor mad right. at him because he called her out on something. And she ends up being a big part of how he gets exiled and and uh, never really recovers from that because yeah. what I read is he um, he had been let's see put into a, a confinement um, in in one area and he was still you know maintaining correspondence trying to fight for his uh, cause and, and trying to gain his release uh, but they were moving him to an even more isolated area when he died uh, on the trip so he couldn't, couldn't survive the journey so um just uh i don't know some parallel uh concepts with john the baptist there right not to mention their names yeah there yeah. you go there you go i think they're both well known for their speaking too because um people are going out into the desert to hear john speak, yeah so yep. yeah yeah <laughs> All right, so uh, John Chrysostom's uh, in the books, and we roll on into uh, number three, which is Jerome. Jerome. They, they just have very unique. I, don't, I feel like this period in history, the names are just all over the place. Well, Jerome like, is still kind of a name that you would hear. Like when I typed it, when we were doing the research, and I typed it in. I, I came up with the time. I had to type in Jerome, early church father, because I just came up with yeah. I typed in Jerome, and it was every every <laughs> other Jerome that's ever lived, right. except for right. But uh, yeah. one guy named Augustine, one guy named John, one right. guy named Jerome, right. and Ambrose. I don't know any Ambroses. I, no. Maybe just a different um, different regions of the world, yeah. you know, all represented here. Uh, speaking of Jerome. Born in 347 A.D., he was uh, born in Stridon, which is uh, modern-day Slovenia. So, you know, we're, we're representing, like we said, different different regions, uh, different ethnicities here, um, but all together seen mostly for their accomplishments for the church. But uh, Jerome was born to wealthy Christian parents. Uh, he was educated early on at home but uh, continues his education in Rome. Uh, his parents sent him off, must have seen that he had lots of potential. At the age of 12, he was sent off to study uh, in Rome, and he became a very serious uh, scholar. He was enamored especially with Latin literature. Uh, I read that he, he hung out in the catacombs. I don't know if he was doing some studies <laughs> down there, or, uh, just taking in the surroundings. Mm-hmm. Catacombs, for yeah. those who may not know, are these subterranean cemeteries where right. uh, I think uh, church leaders and, and others were buried. Yeah. Uh, he was baptized at the age of 19 uh, at the end of this period of Roman education. And for the next 20 years after that, he... He traveled around um, to different areas, uh, I think maybe living off his parents' dime, you might say. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody else could have done this, but was just really connecting with and, and learning from different monastics. He was uh, very interested in monasticism, um, and uh, so was just going around and kind of finding himself uh, and discovering more and more about monasticism. Uh, this included, in, in the year 374, uh, spending some time in Antioch where he was resting from his uh, fatigue, fatigue from traveling and some, some inner conflict that he was dealing with. He developed at, this, uh, at the time a near-fatal illness, and uh, while he was sick, he had this dream that he was dragged before a tribunal of the Lord, and he was accused of being a Ciceronian. 
a Ciceronian rather than a Christian. Sounds like a pasta dish or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But a Ciceronian uh, was a, a, a somebody who was a, a disciple, a follower of the first century Roman philosopher Marcus Cicero. Hmm. And apparently Jerome uh, read up on, on Cicero and was drawn to his material. So he um, he became, uh, in this dream, accused of, of uh, following Cicero more than Christ. And he was received this severe lashing. And uh, he vowed, uh, on account of this dream, to never again read or possess pagan literature. Uh, so highly convicted in that regard. But the dream also at the same time was a source of great spiritual crisis for him uh, for a long time. And he really struggled through some, some internal uh, turmoil. Uh, but shortly thereafter, he wrote his first uh, exegetical, which means just uh, interpretive, like criticizing a text, uh, exegetical work. Um, and that was a, a commentary on the book of Obadiah. Um, why he chose Obadiah first, who knows? Maybe nobody else had done it, right? It was, right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 21 years later, in fact, he looked back on this first text that he wrote, and he, he didn't like it. He disowned it, said it was just a product of his youthful ignorance. Uh, so I guess he wasn't a keen uh, fan of, of his uh, early work. But uh, he spent two years after that living as a hermit on a, a desert island in Greece, once again, trying to trying to sort out um, his pursuit of, of inner peace. And he was trying to live this monastic, um, you know, ascetic lifestyle, but uh, he really didn't have any training in it. He just went off on, on his own for two years trying to figure things out, and uh, it just wasn't working. He was trying to read these texts uh, he had available to him, but they were in Hebrew and Greek, and he, he didn't know how to read them. Um, so he spent two years out there, um, didn't really find the inner peace he was looking for, eventually uh, learned some Greek and uh, also some Hebrew from a, a Jewish convert that was uh, he had access to, but um, didn't find the peace he was looking for. But he was keeping up correspondences with, with other leaders in the church. And eventually, while he's on this, this island in Greece, uh, living in isolation, he gets pulled into through his his letters back and forth these controversies controversies that are heating up in the in the larger church about uh, the Trinity. How do they understand the Trinity or or uh, or Christ's um, uh, identity and uh, things like papal succession? So Jerome gets uh, pulled into all these arguments that are going on, and he finally decides he's done with uh, monasticism or done you know, isolating himself in the desert. He heads back to Antioch. Um, soon after, he reconnects with an old friend in Antioch. He aligns himself with this uh, particular bishop who um, thinks that it would be in their best interest because Jerome at this time was highly thought of as a monastic, as a scholar. Uh, the bishop wants to ordain him. It sounds almost like a political move uh, <laughs> so he could be more popular with the people because he's, he's uh, ordaining the great Jerome. Uh, but Jerome agrees to, to be ordained. And uh, so he's an ordained priest here. He continues his pursuit of biblical studies, though, and um, he begins doing some translating, uh, translating certain documents into Latin, including 14 sermons that have been written by Origen, um, who we talked about last time. And uh, shortly thereafter, he's, he's heading back to Rome. He goes back to Rome. He's going to serve as secretary to uh, Pope Damasus I, and uh, as, as secretary, of course, he has many duties, but he's able to also continue his scholarly work on the Bible and his life of asceticism. 
he revises some older Latin versions of the Gospels um, and um, also uh, teaches some classes while he's there, uh, particularly focuses on these, these classes uh, for women, for widows of, of uh, noblemen and uh, virgins in particular who are interested in monasticism. He starts teaching them uh, about the monastic life and um, in, in the meantime he uh, he writes a defense on uh, what's known as the perpetual virginity of Mary, the idea that the mother of Jesus, Mary, uh, remained a virgin throughout her life. So um, he's uh, he's connecting with these, these women that um, he's teaching he has a, a passion for um, this doctrine that uh, uh, virginity or celibacy is more valuable than marriage. This is something that comes up later on in his writing. Um, but some of his writings and his beliefs and his teachings start to get under people's skin. And um, he's criticizing, calling out some of the clergy and the monks for their hypocrisy. Uh, some of the ways he's... he's um, correcting and translating some of these former texts. Uh, so he gets uh, people upset at him, ends up uh, getting into some, some controversy, and he leaves Rome. He's all upset. He goes off and lives in the Holy Land. Uh, and he first he does a pilgrimage there uh, before he settles into the town of Bethlehem, of all places. And he and uh, one of the, the women who he had uh, taught monasticism to and was uh, was um traveling with uh decide to establish a monastery there in bethlehem uh, where he lives uh, and serves until he dies so uh, this is the life of uh, jerome some of the contributions that he makes one is uh, um, he uh, wrote a catalog of, of christian authors at one point to counter uh, the, the pagans who were writing a similar catalog of, of their own uh, he writes, uh, he gets involved in all these debates <laughs> with these other uh, scholars of the time. In fact, he, he writes this argument against a particular monk who had asserted once again that uh, the equality or that marriage and virginity are equally valuable. Uh, Jerome was convicted that uh, living a life of um, celibacy, virginity was, was more superior uh, to that of getting married. Um, he could be very crude in, in some of these writings and, and uh, very pointed, um, but he was also a, a genius and, and uh, very wise and, and um, convincing in his arguments as well. Uh, he addressed uh, another issue with the heretical British monk, uh, Pelagius, who was trying to minimize the role of divine grace in, in, sal in salvation. Uh, Pelagius shows up in the Bethlehem area, and, and so Jerome responds by writing several volumes of his own beliefs about the issue, uh, and some of this is known to be his, his finest work. Uh, he even had a rocky relationship with Augustine, who we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, lived to, overlapped uh, his life with, with Augustine because uh, Augustine had criticized some of his work, and, and Jerome couldn't handle that too well, so he criticized Augustine back. Um, but Probably his most important uh, accomplishment was that he was able to revise uh, the Latin biblical text and ultimately produce a, a Latin translation of the Bible called uh, the Vulgate. You may have heard of the Vulgate. Uh, this was an incredible accomplishment. He's working out of his monastery in Bethlehem. Uh, he had very few tools at his disposal, a lot of opposition to what he was doing. But the Vulgate, uh, this translation in Latin of the, of the Bible, uh, was used by the church for, for centuries and centuries after that. 
I wrote a lot of commentaries about specific books of the Bible. Um, overall, he's known for his incredible knowledge, and just his, his scholarliness, all that he learned and, and applied to his translations, his commentaries, um, and uh, just this, this uh, life lived as a combination of scholarship and, and asceticism. Uh, his life really was the overlap of those two qualities, and uh, quite an imprint he left on the church and really on the world uh, during his, his time. Right. And uh, I'm going to jump a little bit there what you were saying at the end uh, about um, the Vulgate. I think that might be the accomplishment he's most known for because it, it took him 23 years to complete the translation and it was used with uh, used by Christians for more than a thousand years. So it's incredible. Just the Vulgate was used for a credibly long time. For such a long time, it was used for such a long time that eventually people couldn't read it. And only the priest could read it because it was written in Latin, because um, it was used for such a very long time. Um, and also, the Vulgate means a Vulgate means common or commonly known. Um, so Jerome's desire was was that the Word of God would be re readily available to the common man in the language he understood. Um, and that was his reason for translating um, the Hebrew and Greek scriptures into Latin because it was the most widely used language at the time um, in the transition, um, the translation of the Bible, the Vulgate um, means commonly known. Just becomes ironic though near the end, I don't say near the end, but eventually the Bible, um, the Latin Bible became something that people couldn't use because they stopped <laughs> speaking Latin and they stopped writing in Latin so they couldn't understand it and only the priest um, and church uh, leaders could understand it. Uh, but it was used for an incredibly long time. But also, um, this desire to make a Bible for the language of the common man was um, something that we'll probably talk about these guys later around the Middle Ages when they there was a big push to translate um, the Bible from Latin into a common language, to translate it from Greek and Hebrew into the common language. And uh, many people uh, were killed for that. Um, ambition to have the Bible translated into a common language and not in, and not in Latin. So um, he lays the groundwork for those who will come um, hundreds of years later. Um, so yeah, that that's um, just incredible. Um, his impact in that. So um, and then the last one we have here is the great Saint Augustine. He's probably the goat. If you don't know what the goat means, is the greatest of all time. Maybe not the greatest of all time. That's Jesus. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> glad we clarified. Yeah, that. Exactly. Um, but Augustine, a lot of people, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you people have heard of Augustine. Augustine actually too. When I when I would do the research, he came up as a philosopher. So, mm -hmm. um, people saw him as a philosopher, and a theologian, and he's as as I'll talk about here soon that he's had impact on people inside and outside of the church. So he's he's uh, a very big figure in, in just human history in general, in a sense. Um, St. Augustine was um, was a philosopher and a theologian who had profound impact on Protestant and Catholic theology. He was born in um, AD, 30, AD um, 354, AD 354 is how you say it, and Thyragast? Why do I get all the hard words today? This is like... I didn't even try. All I wrote down... <laughs> all I do is I 
and look up what the modern day equivalent right. is because nobody's ever so heard. So modern day Algeria. Uh, yeah, that's what there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier to say. Fiber gas <laughs> or whatever you say. What <laughs> was it again? Thiagas. Oh, okay. T-H-A-G-A-S-T-E. So yeah. if anyone wants to pronounce that and send us uh, an email, it would be great. Uh, during, <laughs> during the Roman occupation of the region, um, he was the son of a Christian mother and pagan father. He developed a strong interest in rhetoric and philosophy, and he left home in his late teens to study in Carth- Carthage. Um, although his childhood had a heavy Christian influence, Augustine did not follow Christian teachings and practices, but rather li- lived a hedonistic lifestyle. While in Car- Carthage, um, he associated with other young men who boasted about um, sexual ex- exploits and he himself became had a long affair with a woman and at the age of 20 or 21 um, he began to teach rhetoric and um, and at the age of 30 he was al- already a premier um, academic um, in the Latin world um, teaching rhetoric in the imperial court in Milan which um, is where Ambrose was yeah. um, where he took he also then took another lover having left his first so um augustine if you've which you mentioned he wrote the confessions and he talks about that in his confessions his his um hedonistic lifestyle so after a year in rome augustine moved again uh, to become well i already mentioned professor of rhetoric in milan and this is where he began um he heard the preaching of ambrose the bishop and he kept attending because Ambrose preaching um, was just so good. He kept attending to it. Um, and he dropped um, his kind of his um, pagan belief and he kind of really was changing. He was having conflicts with his lifestyle. Um, his, his mother, which was a huge influence in his life, continued to pray for him, um, for him to come to Christ. His mother finally caught up with him and, and was trying to um, set him up with a, a wife and was really trying to help her son so with all this emotional strain with his his lifestyle and his shift of beliefs and philosophies augustine was really struggling with himself and for years he sought to overcome his fleshly passions and nothing seemed to help it seemed to him that his um smallest transgressions were weighed um weighed weighing him down later um he ended up writing um this is also kind of a um, a well-known writing of Augustine that Augustine would steal pears in his youth, and as he reflected about it, he would just steal the pears just to steal them. Um, so he's quoted saying, "Our real," he said, um, when he him and other youth, he said, "Our real passion consisted in doing something that was forbidden, and the evil in me was foul, but I loved it." He just he just loved the evilness of stealing the pears and they wouldn't even eat the pears they would steal them and then throw them away um so one afternoon while he was wrestling with all these things going on um he was walking in the garden and suddenly heard um, this is what he said he heard children singing um take up and read take up and read repeating it repeating over and over again and on the table laid one of paul's epistles and he began reading it and he picked it up, and the first thing he read was Romans chapter Romans thirteen, chapter thirteen, verses thirteen through fourteen, um, and that passage really convicted him of his sins, and his lifestyle, and um, it kind of spoken about when, um, if anyone knows the um, 
I'm looking up that passage right now. Romans 13, 13. Um, so it says, um, let us behave decently as in the daytime and not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in um, delusion and jealousy. Rather, close yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. So that is the verse he read, which spoke directly, you can see it, it spoke directly to his lifestyle. And it convicted him, and it almost, the way he speaks about it too, it reminds me a lot of John Wesley when he was convicted about the reading of, um, reading of, the, of Romans as well. Um, so Augustine's conversion sent shockwaves through his life. Um, he resigned from his profession, and he dashed, um, wrote a note to Ambrose about his conversion, and he retreated with his friends and his mother into the country. Um, there he continued to discuss philosophy and, um, and reading books, and after a year and a, after half a year, he returned to Milan to be baptized by Ambrose, then headed back to Thiagast, which was Algeria, <laughs> <laughs> to live as a writer and a thinker. Um, so Augustine was a prolific writer. He is known for his confessions, a personal account of his life, and he's also known for The City of God, which I was telling Paul is a book I really want to read. It's um, is, is really well known. Um, so The City of God was written to encourage Christians after the sacking of Rome um, in A.D. 4, uh, 410. Um, he remains one of the most influential thinkers in history. His ideas of uh, the memory and the nature of time um, so many of his ideas, his philosophies and stuff influenced um, many people, including Nietzsche and Kierkegaard. Um, so he, they were influenced by him. Also, his work strongly influenced Thomas Aquinas, which we might speak about sometime later, um, and all other Christian philosophers. Later, reform leaders such as Martin Luther and John Calvin, also people we might speak about later, um, they look to Augustine for inspiration, and then many modern Reformed theologians still look to him as a key source for their own writings. Uh, much Reformed doctrine, especially in relation to pre predestination, original sin, bondage of will, grace, and other things have been attributed to Augustine. So Augustine, as I said before, is he's affected many of the church leaders that had uh, that, um, like, Martin Luther and John Calvin, who are really anchors in their own right. Um, so you can see how Augustine had such a great influence on the church, um, and the church at large. Um, and uh, kind of another quote from a couple of quotes that I looked up some quotes from Augustine that I had to, didn't know. Um, so like the quote of uh, love the sinner and hate the sin. Um, that was from Augustine. He wrote that first. It originally is translated with love, with love for mankind and hatred to sins. So he he um, is quote that's he's the first one to say that. Also, he's quoted saying uh, an un, an unjust law is not a law at all. Um, he's quoted um, for that, which I think Martin Luther King quotes that as well. Um, and then he said another quote that's really really well known is that. Um, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Um, that is a really, really well-known Christian quote um, that I've heard a lot growing up. It's really well-known. I think some people might even think it's from Scripture. 
Um, and then another quote that I thought was really good. He said, beauty grows in you to the extent that love grows because charity itself is the soul's beauty. Um, so and that's just the tip of the iceberg of all the things that Augustine wrote and is, and is attributed to him and um, many, many, many quotes that we could find from Augustine because his impact on the church was quite large. Oh. Oh. Yeah, we could do an entire episode just on Augustine. Right. Uh, so really, yeah, just scratching the surface. Some of the ways that he specifically influenced the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Um, exactly. Catholics attribute to him the, the doctrines of the uh, perpetual virginity of Mary that we mentioned earlier. The necessity of infant baptism um, they uh, attribute to Augustine and his uh, teachings. And the, the real literal presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Um, it was Augustine's teachings that influenced uh, that doctrine. Um, he's uh, I, <laughs> this was interesting. He's the patron saint, patron saint of brewers, printers, yeah. <laughs> theologians, yeah. and those with sore eyes. Hmm. That's what I read. I don't I don't know <laughs> if, yes. if that's yeah. literal or if there's um, some uh, humorous intent there, but. Uh, I thought that was interesting. And uh, he also advanced the doctrine of just war, uh, oh, yeah, this notion of uh, uh, war being justified if, if its intent is to defend right. in, uh, innocence and preserve peace. So uh, just uh, some other things that are attributed to, to yeah. Augustine, and those are some huge, right. some really huge uh, concepts and things that are still right. tossed around and debated and many of them still taken right. as, uh, as uh, sacred to this day. Uh, by people in different parts of the world, and and um, you know, so Augustine's influence was uh, over and above it, it would seem all the others, uh, just right. with his his thought and um, and the the ways that he taught and the doctrines and ideas that he uh, pushed out. So, right. but um, even Augustine stood on the shoulders of those who came before him, and yep. um, and even Ambrose, who we mentioned, um, so he he had much. Augustine was standing up. So that's why we're even doing this podcast to begin with, because we're looking at all of those um, those in the early church who had influence in which where we are today. So, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's that's a lot for right. one episode. Yeah. Um, hopefully you, you soaked in some of that and you're uh, just enjoying some of the, the common themes and just getting a feel, really just a feel for uh, maybe what life was like, what the church looked like, uh, some of the different uh, issues and, and realities of what the church struggled with and what a leader in the church had to deal with at the time. Um, just uh, so many things that uh, can enrich us and our understanding of, of church and our faith um, just by looking back at where we come from and, and uh, those folks uh, whose shoulders we're standing on um, as far as what we believe and how we practice uh, what we believe each and every day. So hope you're enjoying this uh, series and uh, we'll be back with more. I think we'll, we'll uh, introduce one or more other uh uh, topics or, or um, jump off on a quick tangent here or there and then come back to some more of these uh, early church leaders in due time. Uh, so be well. Hope to see you in and around the church uh, as you're, you're feeling comfortable doing so or staying connected one way or another. Um, but uh, love to see you on Sunday mornings and uh, reach out. Let us know uh, ideas or thoughts on the podcast. Always want to um, always want to know what you're thinking and go where you want us to go and uh, just uh, be on this journey together. So be well. Have a great week, friends.